Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. There you are. So now we're starting our seventh lecture, and we are in the middle of chapter 2 to 3. Those are the seven letters to the churches. And what I've already mentioned to you is that there is a definite distinction in the book of Revelation that separates the way the Lord speaks to his church versus the way the Lord speaks to the world. As far as I can tell, the book of Revelation has these three parts. Part number one is when he's actually speaking to his church, and part number two, when he's admonishing the world and warning the world, and, the world, and part number three, when he comes into judgment. Those are the three parts of the harrowing part of Revelation, until the revelation of the church, the coming down of the bride, where we actually sail into much quieter waters. What are we going to do tonight? Last week, let's talk first of all what we've done last week. Let's sum up what we've seen last week. Last week, we took a broad brush at those seven letters on the moral sense. We said to ourselves, how, we, how does this apply to me today? And we came up with a number of conclusions, which I think are worth summarizing. The first thing we said was that it, it, is, it is apparent, very apparent, that theological truth is essential. The Lord does not um, look kindly upon those who water down the truth. We must worship in truth. It is not enough to worship. Number two, moral conduct is essential. It flows from truth and must correspond to it. Number three, faith alone is not enough. Work is critical. And we're going to see it again when he says, I saw your works, your works, your works. Four, those whom I love I reprove and chasten. So be zealous and repent. So the necessity of a good examination of conscience. Five, the spiritual life is a spiritual combat requiring us to conquer. And the enemy is Satan. We're not dealing with political enemies. We should not look at those whom we're facing as the ultimate source of enmity. It is indeed Satan. So it's a spiritual battle that we have to conquer for us and for the world. And then last, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me the Eucharistic dimension of those letters. We're going to go back and revisit this today and see how this Eucharistic dimension is very apparent. Those are the seven points. Theological truth, moral conduct, faith alone is not enough. Those whom I love, I reprove. So therefore, we have to examine ourselves. The spiritual life is a combat and Satan is the enemy. And, um, oh yeah, the Lord 
give blessings and curses. We saw that. This is the covenant, covenantal nature. And tribulations are willed by the Lord. And finally, I will come in, in him. I will come, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. And we also saw how each of those letters are structured according to the covenantal lawsuit. Each of them has this header where uh, the preamble, where the strong party is introduced and the historical prologue that reminds the weak party what has been done well and done well and not done well, the ethical stipulations, what they must do in order to remain in the covenant, the sanctions if they don't, and then the succession arrangements, what will be given to them as heirs of the kingdom. And in some cases, in the cases of two churches, there was a part that was inserted and that had to do with prophecy, meaning that the Lord reveals to them certain things because they are in very good standing. And that, that is a pattern and a model that we must apply to our own local parishes. How will the Lord look at my parish today? Well, you've got the pattern right here. So with that in mind, today we're going to look at three churches in, in more detail. Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. And uh, we're going to look at those churches in their historical context. We're going to try and understand what was the life like in these cities when, when the Lord revealed this message to John. And how can we benefit from this knowledge today? The first thing we must do, though, generally speaking, is understand something about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire... was an empire built in such a way that different communities were allowed to keep their own cultural background, live their own faith, and yet live in a state of absence of war. The Roman Empire managed to glue together different cultures from different parts of the world, managed to get them to embrace its values without destroying their own personal identity. That's, not, that's no small feat, if you really think about it. The only other empire I know of, actually the two other empires I know of, who managed to do the same thing, to a large degree, were the British Empire and the Ottoman Empire. Both of those empires model the Roman Empire. The United States does not. The empire of the United States follows a very different dynamic. It's called the melting pot. And it works like this. The first generation comes in and they speak more or less their own language. The kids pick up English, retain the food and some of the cultural background the third generation is diluted. That's how it works here. This is what makes this country strong. So understand that, that for an empire to be able to withstand pressures from without and within, without creating a melting pot, that took some doing. It wasn't easy to do. We have to give the devil its due. That was no small feat to accomplish. 
and I would, I would reason the, the, I, the reason, the fundamental reason why it was structured this way was simply communication. You can't create melting pots when your communication is a guy on the back of a horse who's got to travel for days. You create a melting pot when you get a phone and TV and means of communication are much faster. Then you can standardize and normalize the culture. They managed to do that. How did they manage to do that? What was one of the key ingredients that allowed the Romans to accomplish this? Well, of course, economics. You could become a full-fledged member of the Roman Empire. So not, not all people in the Roman Empire were created equal. Some were citizens, others were not. Paul was a citizen, Roman citizen. Peter was not. That's why Paul ended up being beheaded and Peter crucified, even though they were guilty of the same crime. Economic incentives were given to these people. That is absolutely true. But what was required of them all? One thing in particular. When it came to worship. You can go ahead and worship in your churches. We won't stop you. But there's one thing you must do. Emperor worship. You have to go and every year burn incense before the temple of the emperor. So you see, it can get a lot worse here. We haven't started building temples to the presidents. Although I'm sure some of them would not mind it. We haven't done that. But that's what was, what was being done for the Romans. Every city, therefore, had emperor worship, some more so than others. So for instance, Caesar Augustus. Augustus. What is that name? That's a divine title that he took on. And what was the saying at the, at the time within the Roman Empire? There is no other name by which we will be saved other than that of Caesar. That was the saying. That's where Paul got that, that statement of his. For there is no other name by which we shall be saved other than that of Jesus. He didn't make, up, make that up. He took it from the Romans. That attributed to Caesar and he attributed to Christ. Do you understand why now the kingship of Jesus Christ is so important? Not a kingship in the abstract. Oh yeah, Jesus is king in heaven somewhere up there. But a king on earth that rivals in power that of Caesar. That is essential. That is essential. So if you are in a large city, affluent city, and you're conducting business, and your partner says, well, you know what? We're right about you know, the corner from the uh, temple to Augustus. Let's, why don't I just go and do what we have to do once a year? And you're a Christian. Are you supposed to do that? What if you are a smith and your guild has monthly meetings during which meat is sacrificed to the emperor? Do you eat it? Do you understand now the issue? Those letters are not about purely theological moral issues in the abstract. They have economic impact on the livelihood of people. And we're going to see in, the, in 
in, in very concrete ways how and why. But now, let's take, for instance, Ephesus. Ephesus, yeah, before we take Ephesus, let's put it back Ephesus for a second. One idea you need to erase from your mind is this notion that these cities that, that are mentioned here are like a congregation of huts and a bunch of savages are living in them and they have nothing else to do but kill each other and then sit and grind a stone in the evening. Nothing can be further from the truth. These cities were very sophisticated. So let's take Ephesus as an example. Ephesus, at the time of this writing, had a population of 250,000 people. It had an outdoor theater that could seat 25,000 people. It had a very sophisticated nightlife. You understand that? Adjust your thinking. Because one of the big mistakes we make is to think that our life here is very different from their life back then. Therefore, whatever the Lord is saying to them doesn't really apply to us. Uh-uh. The only difference, the only real difference, is this. Cell phones. That's about it. Oh yeah, right, iPods and all the other stuff. But that's it. But the hairstyle you see today, the, some of the funky stuff you see, the mohawk cuts, the piercing, the earring, the wacky dress code, all of that you would have found in Ephesus during John's time. No different. Adjust your perspective. If it is a population of 250,000, and you're a small group of Christians, people don't really understand who you are. First of all, they, what do they think you are when they look at you? What do, they, what do you look like? You're just like who? Hmm? Jews. You look like Jews. Because what's your origin? The origin is Jerusalem. Most of the Christians in the beginning were convert or were Jews from the synagogue. So you look at them and say, well, you know, Oh, yeah, these guys, they're the weird Jews. Right? You don't know. You will not, I mean, if you live in Ephesus and you're a pagan, you don't look at them and say, oh, yeah, right, those are the members of the universal apostolic church. Adjust your perspective. They look like a small group, and when you talk to them, you don't really understand what they're talking about, because they're not going to tell you. They won't tell you, oh yeah, we have Mass, and we celebrate the Eucharist. And they're not going to tell you any of this. Christians will not tell you that. Those are called the mysteries. They're only revealed to the catechumens. Alright? So you don't really know what they do. But there's this guy, you know, he's a little bit crazy. His name is Paul. He shows up, and he says all these things, and we don't really understand what he's talking about. So to the Romans, as Suetonians, to other other uh, historians would say the Christian religion was contemptible, but for the most part, innocuous, insignificant. You wouldn't bother. So if you're now a policeman in Ephesus, Ephesus, do you think your job is to go look out for those Christians out there? Is that on your list of to-do? Is that the most important thing in your life? No then why the persecution? 
why would the Christians be persecuted? In other words, if they are below the radar, how come they're noticed by the Romans? These Christians are not fomenting revolution. They're not there to overthrow Caesar. They basically have normal lives. In everything, in everything they do, they look and they smell like everybody else, and they go about their business. Why persecute them? How about you raise your hand, because then I can... Yes. How would you know they don't pray to Caesar? Who told you? But I mean, we don't have cameras watching them. How does the message relate to the authority? That's what I'm trying to understand. In a very practical way. I mean, there's thousands of people who go to the temple. Do you sit down and take fingerprints? No. No way. No, they can't pray to Caesar. But we're going to get back to that point. But why would people with whom you have economic relation, meaning your business depends on the relationship with this guy, go and tell the, the... Why? No, that's fine under Roman law. You can go pray to whomever you want. That was not forbidden. Provided, provided you went to the temple and you said, I worship Caesar. Provided. It was only because somebody would tell the authority. Doesn't that make a simple answer? Somebody had to go to the authorities and say, you see those guys? They don't do this. Who might that be? The Jews. The Jews. Yeah. Why? Because to the Romans, the Christians were, as I said, strange, weirdos, contemptible. Their, their religion may sound completely silly. You know, they're, they're honoring this crucified guy. I mean, you know, how nuts can you be? But not dangerous. But to the Jews, it's a completely different matter. Right? So we have the combination of Roman worship and the Jewish population looking at the Christians, and it's the combination of these two that creates the climate for persecution. That's what we're up to. We are up to something where we are up to a situation where you have a group that is envious of the Christian in that case, the Jews, and you have a group of, in authority who has said, in order for you to be a law-abiding citizen, you must do this. But in a state where you can't know what each and every person is doing and not doing, you're not keeping track, you're not keeping a register, you need someone to let you know. You need informers. All right? Now, I said the Jews, but don't think that this is an anti-Semitic ranting. In the specific instance in history, it happened that the Jewish population was the one going after the Catholics. But you can now take that and substitute a bunch of other denominations or ethnicity or religion or whatever else, and you obtain the same thing. Okay, so I don't want you to be focused on the fact that I said the Jews, as if I mean that the Jews the whole and all time and all is history are being doing are doing this, or that the Jews are the only one doing this. It'd be, it'd be completely nonsensical. It'd be absurd. It's just in the moment of time where the church is growing and it's now in full direct collision with the temple, 
you have the strife that started already with Jesus. And now it's going to culminate. Now you understand also that there's no way for this to stop unless what happens? What will make those persecutions stop? The Romans fail, which is going to take a long time. Or what else? The Jews convert, or they stop playing the role they play. Okay? They stop being the ones in place to be able to inform. And it's that third option that took place in 70 AD. When the temple fell, the Jewish power fell with it. And the Jews were scattered across the world, and all the persecution from the Jews to the church ceased. Do you understand how it's 70 AD is such an important thing? The destruction of the temple? Beyond all that, beyond the Jews and beyond the Romans, who's the real enemy? Satan. If Satan is the real enemy, then it makes it possible for every Christian to look at a Jew and to look at a Roman and see in them a victim of Satan. In other words, it, may, it is possible now to love your enemy because you understand that ultimately these people are fallen human beings who fell to Satan. But if you examine yourself, you could see that you too could have been among them. And that makes it possible to love your enemy. That is essential to our Christian doctrine of the love of enemy. Ultimately, the reason why we can love an enemy is because that enemy in the final analysis, is also a victim. It doesn't take anything away from his or her responsibility. But it explains that there are stronger powers behind the human powers. It explains why the Christians never wanted Rome destroyed. The Jews wanted Rome destroyed because their kingdom was earthly. But to the Christians, the enemy being Satan, the battle is foremost spiritual. The Christians understood that the battle is not won by war, is not won by military might, is not won by the number of soldiers you got and how much money you have in the bank, because none of that has any effect on Satan. You can carry all the money you want and all the bombs you want and everything else you want, and if you're going against Satan on your own, you will fail. Because as a spiritual being, he's far superior to all of that put together. You will not defeat him this way. You understand? So every time we fall prey to the thinking, to the what I call earthly political thinking, in terms of economics and politics and this and that, and we put our hope, we pin our hope on a political leader, apart from Christ, we're doomed to fail. No one defeated Satan other than Christ and his mother. That's it. Those are therefore the ones we go to for, for our victory. So, now that we said all that, let's go through Ephesus. Let's begin by reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As I said earlier, Ephesus is a uh, city of great wealth. Its population was about 250,000 people. The site of ancient Ephesus is located 60 miles south of Izmir in Turkey and about six miles inland from the Aegean Sea in western Turkey. Ephesus was a free city. That means that Ephesus had the right under the Romans to govern itself. It had a major stadium, marketplace, and theater that seated, as I said, 25,000 people. By the way, uh, when I say theater, don't think it's just about plays. Remember the Roman games? Yeah, that took place in a theater. Okay. <clears throat> Temples were built to the emperors Claudius, Hadrian, and Severus. But the major attraction in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis, Diana in Latin. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And after devastating fire that destroyed it in 356 BC, it was rebuilt with Dinocrates. You know Dinocrates? You don't know Dinocrates? He was the architect of Alexandria. Now, interesting how worldly renown fades with time. We forget all about it. He's the architect of Alexandria. None of us can even pronounce his name. The Christian faith come to Ephesus with uh, Aquila and Priscilla about A.D. 52 when Paul left them on, en route from Corinth to Antioch. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18, verse 18 through 22. But Ephesus is closely associated with St. John. We understand that he was the bishop of Ephesus and he lived there. Specifically about Ephesus, we know that in Acts chapter 19, verse 8 through 40, that Paul faced a significant hostility from the disbelieving Jews when he was there, and a mob was aroused against him by Demetrius, the silversmith. Why? The silversmith in Ephesus created what? What was very famous in Ephesus? Small statues of Diana that people would buy and take back home. Also, what was very famous in Ephesus were the magical incantations, the charms of Ephesus. Um, I don't have this reference here, but in Acts, Christians, converted Christians come out and burn all these charms. And the, they are valued, what was burned was valued, according to our modern calculation, to about $4 million dollars. 
50 drachmas in a time was, would correspond to about $4 million. Those were worth a ton of money. So you have very strong economic powers against which the Christians are working. Paul is saying, what are you doing with these statues? You can't worship these, these things. You have to throw them away. So he was so effective that sales of the Diana statues fell, the stock market got affected, and people rioted. That was a joke. So you can see that already in Ephesus, this is an affluent city around a very powerful temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. And here come this Christian community saying, you, you can't do any of that stuff to the Gentiles. The Jews were no danger. Why? Because the Jews were not converting Gentiles. You could be a proselyte, but you can't be converted to Judaism. You can't become a Jew. You understand? So the Jews were not about to go tell the world, hey, drop all that stuff and come join us. Paul shows up and he starts converting the masses, the Gentiles. The Jews are standing there looking at this happening and saying, what are you doing? Those are goyim, those are pigs. How could you open the door to them? How could you say that they're saved? How could you say that they can live by grace? They're like us now? No way. So jealousy gets in the way. On, on the other hand, you have these people whose livelihood depends on the temple. Interestingly, the same situation as in Jerusalem. The high priest's livelihood depends on the money collected from all the sacrifices. And they say, what are you doing? We can't accept that. And so the mob was raised and right against Paul, and, they, and Paul had to leave. But the Christians stayed. They stayed, and they built a church, and they were not kindly looked upon. Here's the situation. So you think, wow, well, these people at least are fighting for the faith. Christ comes, and then he says to them, what? I know your works. Right? Let's reread it and see what he said. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. You understand why he says that now? This is not a, a, a church that is in friendly territory. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They have not grown weary. Well, that's not bad, is it? I mean, they're, they're doing pretty good stuff. But I have this against you. And also, you cannot bear evil men, but I've tested those who call themselves apostles. So you have these people come and say, I'm an apostle, and I'm, I'm going to teach you this and that and the other. They didn't accept them outright. They tested them. And they rejected them. So on the level of doctrine, the church at Ephesus is pretty strong. They know their stuff. They know their theology. They can detect the right apostle from the wrong apostle. They're doing pretty good. They are putting up with the pressure. They're not growing weary. But you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. See, Catholicism is always this religion that avoids extremes, not because it hates extremes, but precisely because it loves extremes. Catholicism is an extreme faith. But it's an extreme, but it loves all extremes, not any particular one. So in order to grab all the extremes, you have to be in the middle. You get it? So you can't say, I want doctrine, but not love. I want love, but not doctrine. You've got to say, I want doctrine, and I want love. 
You can't say, I want theology, but I want morality. I want morality, and I want... You want both. So the most extreme thing you can do is be in the middle. That's the extreme point. They, basically, have turned into sort of Pharisaic Catholics. They go by the book, they do everything the book says, and then they forgot the love they had at first. We have a strand of that today in the church. Those who hold very, very strongly to the pre-Vatican era, as if it was the golden era where everybody was a saint and there were no sinners on the street. And they will do everything by the book. Not everybody. Not everybody who holds to that area f fall into this category. Don't get me wrong. Some only. Right? And then they will do everything by the book, but they have no qualm criticizing a bishop. They have no qualm criticizing. They criticized left and right to the point where they became just one big living criticism. Nothing, le nothing else is left of them. Okay, so we can't do that. Many popes. Well, no, 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 not many popes. They obey the pope. They're just a criticism. That's all. They, there's nothing left. Not, they can't love. That's what the Lord is saying to them. I want to point out to you that even in situations of persecution, even in situations where things are tough, Christ will not lower his standards. There are no excuses. They can't say, well, you know, look... I mean, Lord, look at the situation. It's really tough. Give us some slack. He says, I know. I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. I know. But I have this against you. Take that as a model of personal judgment. There's no lowering of standards. This is how it's going to be. That's why examination of conscience on a personal level is so important. You better know now than later and what will he do if, he, if they don't repent and do the works you did at first if not I will come to you and remove your lampstand notice that the judgment is not individual this is not about each individual it's about the whole community he removes the lampstand from the entire parish the whole church there isn't oh I'll remove the lampstand for these three guys and I'll keep it for those two guys uh -uh. the whole group we are collectively responsible for each other. All of us. That's why the prayer of the saints and the com community of prayer is so important. We pray for one another. With no excuse. We can't say, oh, well, just me and Jesus. And who cares with the rest? Yet, um, yet this you have, you hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It appears that the Nicolaitans are antinomials. Basically, antinomianism is this notion that since we have grace, we don't need the law. Again, taking one extreme and leaving the other, Paul said we're saved by grace, not by the law. Well then, since we're saved by grace and not by the law, let's take grace and drop the law. Isn't that Paul? Doesn't it sound like what Paul is saying? Grace is on one extreme, the law is in the other, let's take one extreme and drop the other. And off we go building our own heresy. Well, what they're saying is, I am saved by grace. I don't need the law. I don't need the new law. Therefore, what is it that I don't need? Morality. If I don't need morality, then it's okay to sacrifice to idols. It's okay to share a meal with these pagans. You understand? I can keep my faith, because I'm saved by grace, 
go to church, do all the good stuff, and I can just go sit with those idols at the temple and do that stuff. It's okay because I'm saved by grace. That's what the Nicolaitans are all about. They're basically effectively rejecting the law of the church. So Ephesus, who's really strong on recognizing the law of the church, spots them right away and rejects them. But they don't have love. And because of this, they are treated rather severely. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In the book of Proverbs, I think chapter 3, verse 18. Yes, chapter 3, verse 18 of Proverbs, we read that wisdom is a tree of life to those embracing her. So I will grant him to eat of the tree of life, should be understood in this world as I will grant him to become wise from the wisdom of God. And we will have more to say about the tree of life when we hit chapter 22, because there we'll see that it produces a fruit that is perennial in the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's Ephesus. Smyrna. Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities still in existence today, although a small town of Bergam will, will stand on the plain below where uh, the Acropolis of Pergamum used to stand. Smyrna lay about 35 miles north of Ephesus on the east shore of the agency. You just follow the coast from Ephesus, 35 miles up, you hit Smyrna. It was a proud and beautiful city. It boasted a famous stadium, a library, and a public theater, the largest in Asia. IMAX was there. A famous thoroughfare called the Street of Gold curved around Mount Pegasus which rose 500 feet from the harbor. So if you looked, you'd see this city and then this mount that rose 500 feet above the city. And this thoroughfare called the, the Street of Gold went up around that mount. And at either end of the mount, you had a temple for Cybeel, which was a local deity, and another one for Zeus, the head of all the gods. In, in New Testament times, the population may have been about 200,000, and coins describe the city as the first of Asia in beauty and size. In 195 BC, it became the first city in the ancient world to build a temple in honor of Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. In 23 BC, Smyrna won, won permission, the city competed. Not for the god of the Olympics, although the Olympics... Great gods, Olympics. Anybody sees the connection? We compete for the Olympics, where they were competing back then for building a temple for the emperor. And so nine cities were competing. The same thing we do today to compete to host, back then they did the same thing. This is where we're the best, and this is how strong we are, and this is how beautiful we are, etc., etc. And over 10 other Asian cities to build a temple to the Emperor Tiberius. Smyrna had therefore a strong Roman allegiance and a strong Jewish population. You see the combination, one more time, of the two elements. And so the antagonism with the Christian would have led the Jews to become Roman informers. The Jews 
who blasphemed, as the text says, I'm going to read it after I read this, however, were not real Jews. That's very important for us to understand. In the text, you will see Christ saying, those are not real Jews. What is meant by that? It is meant that a real Jew, a Jew true to the Jewish faith, would never do these things. It is not meant that the real Jew is a Christian. What is meant is a real Jewish person who, who would act in accordance to the Jewish faith would never do any of these things. As an example of a real Jewish person, you would take St. Joseph. He was righteous. You would take Simeon at the temple. He was a Jew. He was righteous. You would take St. John, St. James, St. Paul. None of them would have done these things. As Jews, not as Christians, that's very important. Otherwise, you run the risk of thinking, oh, well, that means all the Jews today who are not Christian belong to the synagogue of Satan. And that would be, again, false thinking. That's not what is being said here. And so, for instance, in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, St. Paul says that a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, but a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. He was not talking about a Christian. He was talking about a Jew. All right? So there's a distinction within the, the, the Jewish faith of those who really, truly live according to the Word of God and the Ten Commandments and those who didn't. Not much different today in the Catholic Church. Within the Catholic Church, in your parish, you have people who really, truly are trying to live the faith sincerely and with a contrite heart, and you have the others. So before I continue, let me read um, the passage about Smyrna. It deserves one important mention. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Satan, in that sense, should be understood in the Jewish sense of adversary. So when Jesus told Peter, get, uh, get uh, thee by me Satan, he meant adversary. Now, of course, the ultimate adversary is Satan. Right? But we don't have necessarily to say that all those who belong to the synagogue of Satan are a bunch of possessed people by the devil. That's not what we're saying. Okay? But those who are opposing Christ. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. So, I'm, I'm giving you the environment in which people at Smyrna lived. Very rich city, had... A very um, had a temple to 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 uh, um, to, the, to Zeus and had emperor worship and a very strong and powerful Jewish community. Now, the most famous martyrdom of the early church fathers is that of Saint Polycarp, who was a disciple of Saint John. Saint Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna, and he was martyred. And we have the account of that martyrdom. It is called the martyrdom of Polycarp. He was the 12th martyr of Smyrna. 
And from that we read, the multitude of heathen and the Jews living in Smyrna cried out with uncon uncontrollable wrath to have Polycarp put to death. As a matter of fact, the Jews joined with the heathen to burn Polycarp alive, although it was the Sabbath. So that tells you the intensity of the enmity that existed back then against the Christians. And that should also help us recall the answer the Jews the, the, gave to Pilate when Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? What did they answer back? We have no king but Caesar, which is the implicit alignment of the Jewish population with Caesar. Right? And hence, it tells you that they already have compromised and are willing to compromise with the Roman Empire. That's what the authorities of the temple have done. Okay? And we see it repeated here, the Jews were able to live peacefully with the heathen, but not the Christians, because the Christians would not, would not sacrifice. Um, so the Jewish agitation against St. Paul and others is well attested in Acts, in 1350 at Antioch, so chapter 13, verse 50, we see them uh, going against them in Antioch. In 14, chapter 14 at Iconium. In chapter 14 again at Lystra. In chapter 17 at Thessalonica. And there were, uh, there's uh, this one author, Barclay, lists six kinds of slander leveled against the Christians. Cannibalism. You familiar with this one? Yeah. So, what, go, what goes around comes around, right? Lust, immorality, breaking up homes, atheism, political disloyalty, and incendiarism. That was the accusation leveled against the Christians in Rome that provoked the first Neronian persecution against them. So, Ferrer remarks, whereas the Ephesians are troubled by self-styled apostles, the Smyrnian are troubled by self-styled Jews. So, in Ephesians, the trouble was from within the church, in, in Smyrna, it was from without. In, in, in Hebrew, chapter 10, we see that the church in Smyrna has been also the object of mobs and looting. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Obviously, the reason why they're poor is because there's tribulation. Presumably, this has led to a very difficult situation for the Christians economically. They couldn't do business with others, and hence they fell into poverty. So during the uh, British Empire, the British government forbade the Irish Catholic from going to school. For 200 years, Irish Catholics could not go to school. And that provoked the massive immigration of Irish across the world. And the population went from 9 million to 3 million in Ireland. Because, because the Catholics, the Irish, immigrated en masse precisely because of that kind of persecution. Uh, Poland, for instance, was erased from the map twice in its history. Not only was Poland completely erased from the map, it was actually moved by about one-third to the left and back to the right. Not only did it disappear from the map, they moved it. Okay, East Timor would be a good example, also persecution by Indonesia, and on and on and on. Nothing has changed, but that is the call. I know your poverty and your, tri and your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. Okay, you're rich. That's why, that's why there is a definite spiritual rich richness in material poverty. That's why 
it is always extremely difficult for rich people financially to make it into heaven. Very difficult. No. I mean, you're rich spiritually, yes, of course. No, but that's what you're referring to? It's referring to spiritual richness. Yeah. yeah. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. We talked about that. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Christ doesn't take the suffering away. Notice. He doesn't say, do not fear, you will not suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that may, you may be tested. Most commentators would agree that back then, if you're thrown into prison, there's only one reason for it. You're awaiting execution. Or, you're waiting to be thrown into the games. And how long did those games last? Typically, 10 days. That's how you amuse the population. 10 days of gaming. But I think there is a very, another important uh, connection or, or a reference to the ten. And that has to do with the two feasts of Feast of Trumpet and the Feast of the Day of Judgment. So Rosh Hashanah, April 1st, and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Judgment, ten days later. And during those ten days, according to the Jewish understanding of those two feasts, the books of judgment were opened. And the fate of man was decided during those ten days. The reason why I think so is because of the because of the uh, what what uh, God will what Jesus will give them. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Crowning happened in the feast of tabernacle that followed the feast of uh, the day of judgment, Yom Kippur. That's when the crowning occurred. It's called the feast of tabernacles. Again, I'm, I can't go in, de in depth into this. There's a whole series we've done on the feast and the temple. And you can talk to Michael if you're interested, because we have those CDs. But it is definitely within the, the liturgical calendar that martyrdom makes sense. It is not outside the life of the church. It is inside the life of the church and it nourishes the church. That's a very important point that we have to keep on reminding ourselves of. The devil will, is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. This is verse 11. So there's two things he will give. First, he will give them the crown of life. And second, he who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. What is the meaning of this? It's actually remarkable. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. The first death, we said, was that of original sin. That's when the first death occurs. We die when we contract original sin. We're spiritually dead. So the first resurrection is baptism. Baptism brings us back to life. What is the second death? Hell. Physical means, means nothing. The fact that you physically die means nothing. Because you can be alive in heaven and therefore you are more alive than you were here in a sense. Or you can be really dead. You're in hell. So to the, to the uh, rabbis, the second death always meant the lake of fire. Always meant hell. Alright? So he who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. What is that promise? What does that mean? 
What is that stamp of what? That's a one-way ticket to heaven. He just gave them a one-way ticket to heaven. He just promised them heaven. You get that? That's what they are promised. And only them. You see, what is then suffering? It's the way to heaven. That's why Christ doesn't take it away. But he's going to give the graces for people to go through it and then reach heaven. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. So, what we've seen so far is these two cities, Ephesus and Smyrna. In the first case, we have a city where people are following the rules, are very careful to keep the truth of the faith, but they have forgotten how to love. And because of that, and despite the hostile environment they're in, they're rebuked. And Christ is reminding them to do the works of love they did at first. So whether it's tending to the poor, whether it's uh, praying for others, whether it's taking care of the sick, do the works you did before. That is very important to Christ. In the case of Smyrna, we have a smaller, poorer community, but yet spiritually they're rich. There's no rebuke. You notice in the text? Smyrna is not rebuked. Christ has nothing to say against them. Alright? And instead of rebuke, what do they get? They get a prophecy. You are going to suffer for ten days. But don't worry. I'm going to be with you. And those of you who conquer, I promise them eternal life. That should be a model for us when it comes to our own spiritual. Why is God not answering my prayer? Well, sometimes God is not going to answer our prayer because simply we're not worthy of the answer. And you can always use these as a very good mode for your own spiritual life. So, uh, I wanted to cover uh, Pergamum, but clearly I'm not going to be able to do that. So, we're going to stop here. And, uh, and what we're going to do is open up the floor for questions regarding the subject for about 15 minutes or so, and then we'll close with a word of prayer, and we'll take a break. So, why don't we go ahead and uh, take questions. Yes? Very good point. The question is, why did, not, did, why did I not allude to the tree of life that is spoken of in Genesis? Uh, the, reason, uh, the reason why I did not allude to, this, uh, to Genesis is because I, um, I wanted to avoid one explanation that is given called the historical explanation. In the historical explanation, uh, people will tell you that those seven letters correspond to the seven ages of the church. Why? Because in the first one, there's precisely reference to the tree of life, therefore it's Genesis. The second one, which we just read, there is what? Um, there is a reference to um, shall not be heard by the second death. And that is an allusion to, uh, if my memory is correct, to Noah, when people basically died in the flood. And so each of those letters can be mapped to those seven ages. And so the, the proponents of the historical interpretation will tell you that these seven letters therefore correspond to the seven ages of the church. Well, what's the problem with this? And what they, what they do then, they go ahead and start mapping it out. From 
you know, from the death of Christ to such and such a period, that's the first age, Ephesus. And from then to then, it's the second age, and so on and so forth. What is the problem? The problem is that the last letter to Laodicea is awful. These people are neither cold nor hot. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So, therefore, the, the, the... the conclusion would be that the last age of the church is going to end being what? Completely decadent. And there are among Protestant, some Protestant uh, um, denomination a very pessimistic outlook on the world. The world is going to trash. There's no point in saving it. Let's just wait for the rapture. That's all we have to do. Okay? And it's based upon this understanding that History will slowly but surely degrade as time goes by, which is absolutely not true, and certainly not Catholic. Because throughout every age, the Holy Spirit is present. Therefore, the Holy Spirit can renew the world at any age. It depends on our prayers. Precisely. So the point is that the many evangelicals did not vote because if the world is being destroyed, why, why vote? Why bother being involved in the political arena if it is going down. Just wait for the rapture. And it it is effectively counterproductive. So that's why I actually stayed away from it plus time. Yes. Yes. A war is defined as the continuation of diplomacy by other means. That's what war is. You can't make your point across using words and economic means and other means and well yet you're going to shout louder. And the one who shouts the loudest wins. So, I am not saying that all, you, know, you can never fight in a war. That's not what I'm saying here. Because there are wars which are legitimate. You know, fighting against a Nazi was a very legitimate thing to do. It must be done. What I'm trying to explain is that we cannot pin our hope for an ultimate solution and peace in the world based on purely human means, whether economic, political, or military. Because ultimately, the enemy we're fighting is the devil, which is a spiritual being, superior to us in thinking, and can outsmart us all the time. We, we don't have the means to win against him. And you see the Bible is a proof of that. Uh, David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. Oh, those are the best guys and they couldn't do it. So therefore, we shouldn't assume we can do it. We have to rely on the wisdom of Christ and his mother. And then they can do it. Prayer must precede everything we do. Yes. Question. Um, question is, um, Smyrna as a city exists today, is there still a church in Smyrna? Um, good question. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you on that next week. The reason why I'm hesitant to answer this is because this particular letter was for Smyrna at that moment in time. It does not necessarily carry over across the entire 2,000 years that went, that, that went by. Yes. Yes, but there's another city, Philadelphia, which was very faithful and was commended by Christ. And Philadelphia doesn't exist today. So, yes. The question is, um, is it a church doctrine that uh, the Jews killed Christ? My understanding is that is, it, it, that, that, that is not the case. But let me get back to you on this. I don't have right now a proper answer to give you. I'll look into it. Whether it was ever taught... Uh, canonically by the church that the Jews are the, respons- are the one who killed Christ. I, my reaction right now is to think no because of some sayings of St. Bernard and other uh, fathers. But I'll, I'll look into it. 
so I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. Yes. The thing is, is this. With the, with the Jew, Jewish community living among uh, pagan, uh, two things happened. Number one, the Jews at large had won a specific, a special status from Rome. Right? So there were officially status that protected the Jews. Therefore, in the minds of people, this status would have extended to the Christians because they confused them with the Jews until the Jews started telling about the Christians, saying, no, 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 those guys are not like us. That's why they were not required to worship at the temple. No, they were not. But they had, they had that special status given to them. Now, having said that, what these people in the synagogue did and didn't do is hard to say. Correct. Yes. So can we, the question is, can we relate what the Lord did with these seven letters to the current state of Christians in Turkey, where you have a minority of Christians in Turkey, they don't have much right, and Turkey, by and large, is 95% Muslim. I don't think so. I think that the reason why you end up with a region, not just Turkey, but the whole of the Middle East, being mainly Muslim, has to do with further problems that were created later by the Christians themselves. I don't think we can directly trace it down to those seven communities, although, prophetically, you could look at this as a pattern to how Christ will behave or act with his church or churches. It is always, anytime, yes, the question is, is it the wrath of God that Christians are not present in the Middle East? You need to think of it this way. It is always, uh, the, the, the worst punishment God can inflict on the world is by allowing for the truth to recede. Because when the truth recedes, people cannot find it. And if they can't find the truth, salvation is very difficult. The truth is rooted in the church and the parishes and the teachings that you find in the church across the world. When the churches are being uprooted from an area, darkness falls on this area. That is a fact. That is a fact. Yes. But on who's, who's, who's responsible for the wrath is not really clear. You know, I would contend that in most instances, whether here or back, back in the Middle East, uh, the mere fact that Christians are contracepting and the mere fact that Christians are guilty of uh, abortion and the mere fact that the Christians have yielded, compromised, and accepted the current values of the society have a lot to do with it. The martyrdom of Polycarp happened after. I, I, the question was with Polycarp, Bishop after John. Polycarp was a disciple of St. John. And while I'm saying yes, I don't know, but I mean he was much younger than St. John, if that's what the question is. Don't know. I'm not sure, because those are big cities and they're you know, quite a bit apart from each other. I know that he was a bishop in Smyrna. Ephesus. I don't know, as I said, if the, the Ephesus had authority over all these cities, even under John. It's not clear. Yeah. Yes, six slanders. Um, uh, incendiarism, meaning uh, uh, we have a more modern word for it. Uh, when somebody starts a fire. And they were accused of that in Rome by, uh, by Nero. When Nero did his deed, he was looking for a scapegoat. And Popea, the harlot empress, was of Jewish background. Popea will play a very important role in my understanding of Revelation when we get to the harlot seated on the beast. Okay. 
she was the Jewish harlot, and uh, she was spoken of very well, even by Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, but not well at all by Tacitus and Suetonius and other Roman historians. The Roman had nothing but contempt towards her. The Jewish, the Jews looked, at, looked up to her because she had Nero's ear. And probably through her, the accusation came to the Christians. And so Nero launched his persecution against the Christians, even though up to this point, they were never on the map. And right after that, when he figured out that these people were using him, he launched an even worse persecution against the Jews. Right? That's when they were accused of lighting up the fire in Rome. Uh, Arson week, thank you. At yes. Good question. During this time, was Peter still alive? It all depends when you date the book. According to the majority of, uh, of um, theologians would, or, or uh, commentators would date the book during uh, Domitian's reign, which is about 96 AD, at which point St. Peter was already dead. I am of the opinion that this book was dated prior to 70 AD. So right around the time, whether Peter was still alive or not is not clear, but close to his death, if, if, if nothing else. Any other question? Yes. This, uh, no, I would, I would contend that everything was written before 780, even the Gospels, for a very simple reason. None, none of the Gospels mention the, the fall of Jerusalem. Correct, before 780. Right, so that's the thesis I will propose to you, but I will also uh, show you why you can hold to a thesis that says that the book was written during the mission's time. There are some good arguments to it, I don't think they're strong enough, but, but I'll present the two to you eventually when we hit the important juncture where this will play a role. Yes. Uh, did any of the seven churches not fulfill God's orders? Uh, we believe so because those churches don't exist today. Every church is removed by Christ. No one removes a church without his express order. Why? Because himself, he said about himself, he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. He has authority to lay it down. He has authority to take it back. The church is his bride. No one touches the parish of his church without his express authority. So when you see a church that doesn't exist anymore, you have to wonder. And we, we can't just blame time because the church of Rome is as old as these churches and it still exists today. And other churches as well are still in existence. Okay? Any other question? We have... Time for one more. Yes. Very good question. Very good question. Question is this. So in the book of Revelation, we have our Lord talking to St. John and telling him about the status of the churches. Why don't we have our Lord today talking to Pope Benedict and telling him? There are two answers. Answer number one. Revelation is part of the public mission of Christ. After the death of the last apostle, that Jesus and the knowledge, the body of truth we need for salvation is complete. After that point, it was incomplete. That forms what we call the canon of scripture. Right? That's reason number one. Reason number two. Through the charism of Peter and the bishops and the working of the Holy Spirit, this is still happening. How? We call them encyclicals. Catholics ignore or don't read or don't study 
the encyclicals of the popes. But what are the encyclicals? There is exactly what you see here. One good example, Humanae Vitae. Humanae Vitae, the Lord is speaking. To a Catholic, the Lord has spoken. That's how strong this is, because of the charism of Peter. Do you understand how this works? Okay. Very well. Thank you very much. Now let's stand and finish with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.